This is SAFM Sport with Tabiso Musia. Okay, we are going to start off the show by speaking to Professor Peter Alegi, who is the author, uh, one of the authors of South Africa and the Global Game, Football, Apartheid and Beyond, also an African football scholar. So we just want to find out about, um, the, about uh, the, as we celebrate Human Rights Day today, about the impact of the Sharpeville massacre when it came to uh, the sporting community, because we believe this is uh, shortly after this massacre, um, this is when FIFA actually started to act. But uh, the professor will tell us more about that. He has written a book. The book is out. It's been out for some time now. If you haven't heard it, if you haven't read it or heard about it, it's still never too late, of course, uh, to go and find out more about the book and try and get your book. It, it came out during the 2010 World Cup World Cup here, but they've done some great work do, do, documenting uh, the history of uh, the, of the football, especially during apartheid and back in those days. So he's going to be our first guest. And then next up, we'll look at this um, Chiefs case and them winning the arbitration. What does it mean? Is an arbitration ruling final and binding also or is there a way forward here for the PSL or for interested parties who might want to challenge this ruling because we do believe that there will be a meeting at the league's offices uh, or of the league uh, tomorrow but let's welcome Professor Peter Alegi on the line. Good evening Professor thanks very much for being able to speak to us tonight on SAFM on this Human Rights Day Thank you for having me Thanks, uh, Professor. And, and we've invited you to educate us more than anything else as we commemorate Human Rights Day here in South Africa. Are we correct to say the Sharpeville massacre would have been would have been one of those tragic events that kick-started South Africa's international sporting ban, the sports boycott, as they called it at the time, especially when it came to football? Yeah, I think that's largely right. I mean, what happened on March 21st, 1960, in the world, and particularly sports people around the world, to the atrocities that were happening in South Africa under apartheid, in a way that was difficult to argue before. Okay, we, sorry, Professor, we're just, losing, we're just losing you there. We're going to try and get you on the better line. Apologies for that, Professor Peter. Alegi there, wanted to, we want to hear everything um, he has to say because we really want to educate each other on this show. And if um, you also want to weigh in on any of our conversations, the lines are always open 061-4104-107. That's the number for voice notes. You are welcome to comment on the F1. Also, we might not get there. Well, we won't get there tonight because there's just a lot to talk about. But you are welcome to give us your views. If you've been watching the cricket, I was at the cricket on Friday um, at Supersport Park. I didn't go on Sunday for Pink ODI. It's a pity that... But, uh, there were no fans for Pink ODI yeah, because we know what a vibe it is. But the Proteas always performing during the Pink ODI and they did the business once again yesterday um, at the Wanderers. And uh, the last ODI then will be on uh, Wednesday back at Supersport Park in Centurion. That will be the third and final ODI. I wonder, um, we're going to speak to Ed Rainsford earlier. I wonder if you would have thought that going into the third and final ODI, it would have been at 1-1. Because Bangladesh played out of their skin in that first ODI. First ever win in South Africa. Second time they've posted over 300 against the Proteas and their highest score, that 314, uh, was their highest score against the Proteas. And then they became the Bangladesh that we used to know of previous years in the second match. At one stage, they were on 52 for 5. So let's see what happens in the third ODI. By the way, the uh, women's team is playing tomorrow. Well, playing at midnight um, against Australia. That's a tough one. That's probably the game of the tournament so far. Um, I don't know. But it, 
I guess it's not a win at all costs because the Proteas have won four out of four. Australia have won five out of five. Surely these two teams are through to the semis. Remember how it works is that everybody plays each other once and then the top four goes through to the semis. So at least the Proteas women have done the business before this match um, and it's doesn't feel like a must win, but it will give them huge confidence if they get to beat Australia because Australia are rampant and they're seen as the favourites for this Women's ODI World Cup. And, and some of our players actually play in the Women's Big Bash League, the likes of Laura Wolford, so they'll be familiar with the opposition and some of the players that they will face um, when they meet Australia tomorrow. So it's midnight and the question remains now. Do you sleep or do you stay up? That's always the tough question. Okay, let's take a break and we'll try and get the professor on a better line. This is SAFM Sport with Tabiso Musia. Okay, let's try it again. Professor Peter Alegi joined us on the line. Uh, th- th- good evening. Well, I said good evening again, Professor. Sorry about the line earlier on. We just lost you there when we were asking if this Sharpville Musca could have kickstarted the international sporting ban or the sports, bo- sports boycott. Yes, I think so, because the sporting world really did not appreciate it what was happening in apartheid South Africa, I think, until those photographs from Sharpville came out. And the uh, scenes of men, women, and children fleeing police bullets, I think, struck uh, at the conscience of many sportsmen and women internationally. So that was when the movement to suspend white South Africa from FIFA really accelerated. Mm. And, and before the massacre, what was the attitude of the international world uh, with what was happening in South Africa? Well, if we're talking about sport in general, mm. uh, the world community was tolerating uh, apartheid because the tradition in sports was, of course, to keep politics and sports separate, this myth that you could do such a thing, right? Uh, but of course, by the 1950s, South African sport activists like Dennis Brutus had already pointed out that uh, South Africa was in violation of uh, the Olympic Charter, which expressly, expressly prohibited racial discrimination. And so the fight was already on in the 1950s. But as it often happens in history, uh, you need a dramatic turn of events perhaps to trigger change. Yes, and, th- and and this must have been a powerful statement then from FIFA because uh, football was and still is the world's most popular game. Yes, and of course FIFA was run largely by white Europeans and, and some South Americans at the time, but many, many African countries were joining FIFA after independence, as well as many Asian countries. And so it was actually African countries in alliance with the Eastern Bloc and with uh, Asian countries that argued, look, we need to be true to our constitution, we need to be true to our beliefs, and we must uh, suspend white South Africa. And so you can argue, as I have, that actually the fight against apartheid in the wake of Shotville was an important force in truly democratizing world football. And what was South Africa's policy at the time, uh, Professor? Obviously, it was to pick an all-white team, but were, were overseas team then also forced to bring all-white teams to South Africa at the time? Sorry, I didn't understand the last part of the question. Could you repeat it, please? Yeah, so I'm saying if you were a visiting team and you're coming from, for, for example, from England and you want to come and play South Africa in sport, did your team also have to be white, just like the South African team? Right, yes. 
so until the suspension of South Africa in 1961, uh, there was a, let's call it tradition, in inverted commas, uh, that visiting teams uh, should uh, play uh, along segregation lines. Yeah? And this was true also in rugby, and this was true in cricket and, and all the other team sports. But then there was something that happened in 1959 that is not well known, and that is that there was a, a team from Brazil that was traveling to Mozambique, which at the time was, of course, a Portuguese colony. But the team was named Portuguesa Santista, and they arrived in Cape Town with their ship, and they were going to play a team against the Western Province side. But uh, the, the South African activists led by Dennis Budis uh, immediately launched a campaign saying, well, the Western Province team is all white, and you uh, have to play with an integrated team. And the Brazilians then decided that they uh, uh, could not uh, uh, abide by apartheid rules, and uh, therefore they wouldn't leave their black players off the team, and uh, the, team, the match never took place. And it's one of the earliest instances in which visiting teams refused to play by apartheid rules. This was in 1959, so before the Shazil massacre and before uh, the suspension of South Africa from FIFA. But generally, yes, visiting teams would abide by apartheid uh, rules and regulations. And after FIFA then took a stance, um, did it have a ripple effect? Did other sporting bodies also cut ties with South Africa, or did that take some time too? Yes, many other sporting bodies then would follow uh, the example of FIFA, and the most famous is in 1970 when the International Olympic Committee uh, expelled South Africa. Uh, World Cricket also uh, kicked uh, South Africa out, and almost all of the international sporting bodies would uh, suspend or expel South Africa by the 1980s. So FIFA, in a way, was a, a pioneer in this respect. And we've always been told, uh, Professor Peter Alegi, that uh, that football in the country was actually one of the few sporting calls during that time, during apartheid, where whites and blacks managed to play together and that the players did want to play against each other. How accurate was that? How hard was how, that? I'm saying how, how accurate is that? Is it that, that football actually was yeah. one? Yes. Yeah, there were... There's a lot of uh, truth to that, right? And, and most of the players who became more politically active, you know, have told me, I was not a political person, but in order to play the best possible football, we needed to be able to play against everyone, whether you were African or colored or Indian or white. And apartheid group areas and all those other terrible laws prevented us from doing that. So simply by trying to play the best possible football, we almost inevitably <laughs> became opponents uh, of segregation and apartheid. And so uh, there were times when football really was leading the way, uh, and other times when I think football actually could have done a little bit more. But um, I think by the 1980s, what you really see is, you know, South African football is probably the most integrated of the professional sports uh, in the country. And this is well before the uh, transition to negotiations and then to democratic elections. So I think there's an example there that sport, uh, when it's true to its spirit, brings people together. And uh, if you do that in conditions like apartheid South Africa, that becomes almost like a revolutionary force. Mm. So, so we can say that football then was used as a tool to fight the injustice that was happening in the country at the time. Well, I, I think in, in the 
big picture, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. But we also shouldn't uh, we shouldn't think of football as simply a black or white uh, issue or black or white sport because mm-hmm. uh, I think the underground it was more complicated than that. But yeah. overall, I think it gave the majority of South Africans a sense of their humanity and it really inspired them to. Uh, fight for equality and for justice and democracy in the country. And and during those times, would the the popular clubs like Chiefs and Pirates are the popular clubs now? During those days, would they also have white fans during apartheid? Uh, Orlando Pirates uh, had a, quite a mixed team in the late 1960s. Uh, of course, Kaiser Chiefs would be formed out of Pirates, right, uh, in 1969-1970. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Pirates had uh, players who were uh, classified as colored and also as Indian, uh, as well as, of course, uh, uh, African. So, yeah, Pirates were quite mixed. It was more unusual to have white players until the late 1970s. That's when the first um, uh, white players were allowed by the regime, the government, to, to be signed. And so by that time, yes, both Pirates and Chiefs actually did have some white players as well. And that was one of the ways in which soccer was helping to break down the barriers uh, of, uh, of apartheid. Okay, that's interesting. We are chatting to Professor Peter Alegi for those uh, who've just joined us. Uh, just trying to find, um, well, as we commemorate Human Rights Day, we've also found out that it had an impact, the Shabu Muska had an impact in the sports boycotts of South Africa um, during the 60s. And and then in, in the book, Professor, um, in the book, um, South Africa and the Global Game, Football, Apartheid and Beyond, there's a name that comes up in the book, Darius Lomo. What's Darius Lomo's story and why is it so unique? Now, Darius Shomo was a fascinating individual. He was a a, a superb footballer, but also a a great boxer, uh, and uh, also a musician and and, a high school teacher. He was really uh, an eclectic individual. And he was uh, spotted by a Dutch uh, businessman in Durban while playing for the Durban representative team and recruited to go play in the Netherlands with the great Steve Kalamazoo Mokone, ah. who had already signed for Her- Heracles Amelo in the late 1950s. And so Kjomo uh, ended up joining Mokone as one of the earliest black professional players in Europe in 1958. And he also helped bring another South African player, uh, uh, Shordex Zuma, also from uh, Durban to the Netherlands a couple of years later. And uh, it's very interesting to think of this one small town in eastern uh, Holland uh, having so many South Africans, and particularly black South Africans, uh, joining their ranks. And Somo ended up retiring in the Netherlands and working, uh, ironically, as a welfare worker for poor whites uh, in the Netherlands. And so, as a Zulu speaking, black South African, he was very proud of that, you know, that he had succeeded as a professional soccer player, also as a boxer, but had then spent his uh, most of his adult life helping disadvantaged whites in the true spirit of, of non-racialism. Wow, so, so a man of many talents then, Darius Lomo. Indeed. <laughs> Oh, what a story. And then the, the the book I'm referring to came out before the World Cup or during that World Cup here. I'm not sure exactly, 2010 exactly. Was that intentional, Professor? Did did you get a feeling that South Africa and South African football had come full circle by hosting the continent's first ever um, FIFA World Cup? 
In many ways, yes. I mean, it was such a tremendous success in organizing terms. You know, the world came to South Africa. We had a great party for for a month, watched uh, one of the most entertaining sides of all time, I think, Spain, uh, win its first world title. And, you know, I, I think it really showed the world that uh, African Africans uh, not only love the game and have for a long time, but are capable of putting on the greatest show on earth. So in many respects, uh, it was a great showcase. Uh, unfortunately, I think the economic dimensions of the tournament uh, were more challenging. And uh, as, as Daniel Yodan even himself said a couple of years after the World Cup, you know, maybe we shouldn't have built so many uh, expensive stadiums and maybe should have invested a little more in the infrastructure to uh, grow the game where it really needs to grow in South Africa, which is in the townships, in the rural areas, and also at the school level. Uh, and for girls and, and women, you know, those are the areas that I think South Africa really needs to uh, invest in order to reach its full potential. I was going to ask you about that legacy, but I think you've answered the question. And then, we finally, we always get complaints or, or people just raising concerns that there's a lack of white players now these days in South African football compared to the past. Does that surprise you? Uh, not really. No, not really. Uh, and I say that understanding why people uh, think that there's... Uh, not enough white players, perhaps. I mean, there's been a lot of social changes in South Africa, and I think this has more to do with money uh, than anything else. And the fact that now uh, people have access to a lot of other uh, opportunities for sports and leisure, and football is no longer number one in many people's uh, options. And so, you know, I think that's that's a big part of the reason. But I have to say that it would be important for South Africa to be able to keep drawing from its diverse population and let the talent really shine and pick players and develop players according to their uh, abilities and to their potential. And it doesn't matter what you look like, Mm. of course, to to do that. So, you know, I think it's, um, it's always a great challenge to develop great footballers. Anyone in the world who has coached the game and played the game will tell you that it's very difficult to predict who is going to be uh, an excellent professional. But I think it would be good to try and question, you know, why is it that we're picking certain players uh, for youth teams? Why is it that we're picking certain players for the senior team? What are their qualities that they're bringing to the game? Are there other factors that are that are coming into this decision making? And I think, to be honest, you know, self scrutiny is important. But I think South Africa you know, has an, an amazing pool of talent in all parts of the country. And so, you know, if it's a, a colored player, an Indian player, a white player, a, an African player, whatever, um, South Africa has the possibility, of course, of being as good or better than Brazil. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Professor, for enlightening us and educating us here on SAFM. We just thought we should bring you on, just reference uh, to that book and uh, the impact that it has, especially on this day where the country commemorates Human Rights Day. And we appreciate your insight. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Professor of History at the Michigan State University. Also is Professor Peter Alegi. Go get the book if you haven't got it yet. You'll find it more about Darius Lomo. Hey, maybe that's a flashback we should have, uh, Darius Zomo. This uh, prof- uh, Professor Peter Alegi is one of the authors of South Africa in the global game, Football Apartheid and Beyond. Okay, we're going to take a break. and.